Hey, ladies. You guys didn't have a lot of coffee tonight, did you? Mm. Rita, you're going to need to crank up the volume on that coffee back there, I think. Okay, well, will you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week, and we're going to be starting in verse 17. Um, and before we get started tonight, I just wanted to, I have to remember, I don't have a headset on, I have to stand here, it's really hard. I'm just going to hold on so I don't walk away. Um, I just wanted to let you guys know about something that had occurred last Sunday. As you know, our motorcycle fellowship provides security for us here tonight. A bunch of bad bikers out there keeping our cars safe. Yes, it's, love those guys. Well, last week, one of our guys who was out here with us on Monday night, uh, Ed Hanold, was uh, on his bike on a rural road here in Vista, and um, we don't know precisely what happened, but it appears that somebody pulled out in front of him, causing him to uh, go down on his bike, actually got ejected from his bike. And it was a slow-speed, single-vehicle crash. Ed is an extremely experienced, careful rider. He's one of our road guards as well as one of our leadership guys. He's a really a very trained rider. Um, it's one of those accidents that if it could have been avoided, it would have been avoided. Uh, he's that competent a rider. Uh, when he went down, he severely broke both his arms, had to have surgery on both of them. But more concerning to us was that he uh, sustained a very, very serious concussion. Uh, he was fortunately wearing, as every rider should, a DOT helmet that pretty much saved his life, but he had no brain bleeding or, or serious brain injury, but he had a really severe concussion. And so the, for the better part of the week, he was kept under sedation and intubated in his breathing. And um, every time they tried to wean him off that and bring him around, he started to have a lot of difficulty with his uh, vital signs and that sort of thing. Uh, but Friday kind of started to come out of it a bit. Saturday morning was a little more alert, able to respond to commands. By Saturday afternoon, they had him, uh, he was fully awake and responding to commands, recognized people. Uh, by Sunday, they took out his breathing tube, and today he took out his own feeding tube because he's that kind of guy. And uh, so they tried him on some soft foods, and now he is totally on soft foods and probably be moved out of the trauma center in the next day or so. So we just praise the Lord for that. And I wanted to share that with you because Ed is one of our guys here that serves us faithfully. He and his family, uh, Monica and uh, Larry Favreau and their mom, they've been in the church of like 20 or more years. They're just an awesome family. Ed serves in a lot of different ways. And um, we're just so blessed by him. So I just want to encourage you to please be praying for him. It's going to be a long process here, uh, as you can imagine, with both arms broken and uh, he... He's starting to recognize people and stuff, but it's, you know, he's going to take a long time for all the stuff to, to come back together and to work properly. Um, one of the other things I just wanted to share with you, the family has set up a GoFundMe account for Ed, as you can imagine. We said, you know, he's staying in like a four-star hotel over there in the trauma center, and as you can imagine, it's a pretty pricey room. Um, and he's been there a week and, and has a long way to go. So Monica has set up a GoFundMe account. You can go to the GoFundMe.com site and search his name. If you need any more information about that or the spelling, see me afterwards. Or you can link it from the Calvary Vista Motorcycle Fellowship Facebook page because that's a really long name. We have a link there. Um, if you so feel led, and uh, if you can't, maybe just share that information with others on your Facebook page or you know through email or whatever. But do be praying for our brother. 
Uh, we love him dearly. We're so grateful to the Lord for preserving his life. And uh, really, it could have been so much worse, minimizing his injuries. So I want to pray for Ed now and pray for our study. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for these men that serve us so faithfully out there in the parking lot, these guys that give of their time, Lord. And, and really, you know, it's a parking lot. We just put themselves in a, in, a, in a dark place for our benefit, Lord. And I do pray you protect them out there while they're watching over us and our vehicles. And I thank you for Ed, Lord, and just your hand upon him and just the progress you've allowed us to see in him this week. And we do commit him to you and ask you continue to heal him, strengthen his mom, his sister, uh, his brothers and and uh, just all of the family as kids, Lord, that uh, you would just give them a measure of comfort and peace and rest now that we can see that truly he is on the mend. And uh, Lord, I do pray for your time in the word, our time in the word tonight, that you would speak to your women here. Speak to me, God. Continue to teach me as you've been showing me stuff all week long. So grateful for this rich passage in your word. And I pray that you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 4 is where Ephesians takes a turn. It turns the corner from the kind of nuts and bolts of the doctrine of who we are and what Christ has done for us, and we've now turned on to the street where you and I are going to be told more and more, given more practical instruction for how we are to walk. Warren Wiersbe said of this chapter, the Bible was written to be obeyed and not simply studied. And this is why the words therefore and wherefore are repeated so often in the second half of Ephesians. Paul was saying, here's what Christ has done for you. Now, in light of this, here is what we ought to do for Christ. So let's pick it up in verse 17 and read. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who steal, who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Well, Paul opens this section up by giving a pretty scathing indictment of Gentiles, um, these unbelieving Gentiles. He uses some really, really strong language. Well, I'm no Greek scholar, but I do have a Hebrew-Greek dictionary, and I was curious about what these words actually meant in the original language, because they're pretty strong in our language, and, and the Greek is so complex. So I looked them up, and here's what I found. When Paul talks about the futility of their mind, he's talking of something that's without any real result, that their, that their way of thinking just really doesn't produce any kind of worthwhile result. 
Their understandings darken, and it more literally means to be obscured or blinded. They just really, no light can get into their understanding. They're alienated from God. In the Greek, it means, um, it means to ignore, but not they're ignorant in the sense of, wow, I never heard that. That's new information to me. I don't know that. But it actually means to ignore through disinclination. They're just not even inclined to find anything out about God or know anything about him. They have blindness of heart, and it means that there's, that there's a stupidity and callousness of their heart, that they're hard-hearted, that they're past feeling. They've become apathetic. They have no sense of shame. Because they have chosen to ignore God, they've obscured any opportunity for revelation of him because they're not interested in participating in life with him. But they rather choose to live lives of lewdness, the flesh, lustful pleasures, and practices, one translation says, every kind of impurity. And Paul says to these believers here in Ephesus, no longer, no longer walk as the rest of these Gentiles because they used to walk like this. And God doesn't waste any words here. He doesn't give any instructions unless there's a purpose to them. And he wants them to see what they were and then continue to deliberately walk away from that unbelief and all the behavior that it produces. Remember back in Ephesians chapter 2, it said, and you he once, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And that whole chapter is filled with references to what they were and what they are now. You were far off, but now in Christ you have been brought near the blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this before. None of us are where we should be. Um, None of us are where we're going to end up. But we should always be moving away from what we were and where we are now. And these Gentiles that Paul is writing to, now they have heard And now they have learned that the truth, the real truth, the source of all truth is in Jesus. So the Lord's going to lay out some specific issues that are present and the way that they are to move past those. And while I believe that these were carefully chosen issues that were directed to a specific audience, these were real people that he was writing to, those first initial readers were not the only audience this pertains to. There's definitely a word for here, for all of us here. Every one of these things listed in the last part of this chapter could be lurking and sometimes even sadly really flourishing in our lives today. And like the Ephesians, we need to hear them specifically and address them and hear what the Lord might be saying to us about the presence of these things in our own life. I just finished reading a book. It was so, so good. It was a compilation of messages given by the late A.W. Tozer. And the book is called Rut, Rot, or Revival. And it's dealing with complacency among Christians and the way that they walk. And the book details how we can get into a spiritual rut. You know, we, we're good at this. You know, we do the right Christian thing and we read our Bibles and we come to study. And, you know, we can just kind of find ourselves growing in complacency and kind of getting in a rut. A rut. And instead of just kind of being in a rut, what happens is if we're not moving forward, we just start to rot. We just get stagnant and we start to rot and revival is what is needed. And he wrote that there needs to be a reform in our practical beliefs about God's design for mankind, the way we're supposed to live. He makes this really important distinction between nominal beliefs, which is defined as things that exist in name only or things that we say we believe and things that are practical beliefs. And he defines the practical beliefs as what you hold on to in your reality, what's real in your life, the way you really live, the way you really walk, and also what things hold you. And those practical beliefs are the things that shape our thoughts and dictate our actions. 
And as you and I read here through verses 22 through 32, I'm sure you, like me, you hold to the belief that these things are wrong. (laughs) These things are wrong. They're sinful behaviors, and a person who follows Christ should never participate in any of those things, like lying and stealing, corrupt speech, which literally means rotten and worthless speech in the Greek, bitterness, wrath, anger, loud fighting, evil speaking, malice. Listen, even the heathens think those things are bad. Even total unbelievers believe that those are wrong. You know, in that sense, we believe, as the unbeliever does, that such actions are not the way that people should act, but the difference is what we do with our belief. And like the Ephesian believers, we need to be reminded where we came from, our former conduct, as Paul puts it back in verse 22, and then we need to do something different. And while, of course, salvation is a gift of God, it's not of works, Our sanctification is something that we have to participate in, and it's something we have to choose to participate in. We have to do something to move our nominal beliefs into practical beliefs that manifest themselves in our reality. And this is really critical. This is a step that we have to take. We have to move our nominal beliefs, the things we hold to in name, into practical beliefs that manifest themselves in our daily reality. You know, Paul tells us in, not Ephesians, in Philippians chapter 2, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And I like the way that the New Living Translation puts it. It says, work hard. Not just work, but work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with a deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, and this is the good part, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. We participate in the process. You know, a farmer doesn't walk to the edge of his field and stand there and say, oh, Lord, give me a crop. I mean, maybe if he watches certain preachers on TV, he might try that, but it won't work, I'm telling you now. You know, you can't just stand there and pray and say, Lord, give me a crop. The farmer has to go out and till the field. He has to plant the seed. He has to tend the field. He has to harvest the crop. God gives him the desire to do the work. He gives him the ability to do the work. He goes and he does the work. And God gives us the desire and the ability, and we respond obediently by doing some spiritual work in the fields of our hearts. He gives us the desire, and he gives us the power. And God gives us not only what not to do in this section, but what we are to do. And thankfully, he tells us specifically how to do it. Look at verse 22 with me again. It says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Three things, three things, write them down. Three things that we're told to do. The first We need to put off the old man or the old woman, to be gender specific in this room. We need to put off that old man. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And that word renewed there, it means to renovate or to reform. It's different than just learning stuff. So we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And we need to put on the new woman. We need to put on the new woman. Now remember this about that, those three things. These are instructions to people who have already been born again. 
they are already indwelt with the Holy Spirit. This is not how to be saved, but how to walk in our life with Christ now that we are saved. We're to put off the way we used to act that was directed by the way we used to think. We're to renovate and be reformed in the spirit of our mind, to think a different way, and because of that difference in our thinking, we're to, in a manner of speaking, clothe ourselves differently. So first, we're going to talk about putting off the old man. Paul said in Philippians 3 that one thing he did was to forget those things which are behind and to reach forward to those things which are ahead, pressing for that goal that is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we need to agree with God that the old man needs to go. And we need to be the one to just put him off and leave him back there behind us. You know, some of us have really radical testimonies. We have those testimonies that fiction writers can't even make up, you know. Pastor Rob calls us those people that have testimonies like that, that, that they were saved they were saved out of the pit, that they were in the pit. I mean, they just had sin-filled lives. And, you know, for people like that, it's actually really pretty easy. When you get saved and realize what the Lord is, is giving to you, you just want to throw all that off. You want to run away from that. That's really easy to throw off. But some people have a testimony that's a little bit different. Pastor Rob calls them people who were saved from the pit. They never really went into that real degraded state. My husband Dave was one of these guys. He's a pastor here on staff now. He was one of the best unsaved guys you'd ever want to meet. You know, he was a corporate executive. He was an upright guy, a moral guy. He still needed saving, but, you know, he was a great guy. And when you're like that, sometimes it's a little harder to leave all of the old man or woman behind because. You know, you did some good things. You have some good traits. You have some great abilities. But you know what? Paul had a lot of good traits. He had done a lot of good things. He had a lot of admirable things in his past. He was a, you know, a Pharisee of the Pharisees and of the right tribe and all of this kind of stuff. He was really well respected um, as a rabbi. And, you know, he was, he was a guy that if, if we were all Jewish ladies, we would be like, Paul would be a catch because he's that kind of a guy. He's godly knows the Lord, walks with the Lord, serves him well. But you know what? All of those things, he said that he counted them all as lost. He counted them as just rubbish compared to simply knowing the Lord. He put off his old man, even all the good parts. He didn't try to bring any of that into the new life with him. And we, like Paul, need to, as Julia sang, surrender all. We need to surrender all to Jesus. Verse 22 says that the old man grows corrupt. The longer he hangs around, the worse he gets, the worse he makes us. And the word corrupt in that verse means a shriveling, a wasting away, and leaving something worse off than when it started. That's not a process that stops. The longer that old man is hanging around, the more that's going on, and we want to put him off. That isn't something we want to hang on to. So, you know, regardless of what our lives were like before we were saved, whether, you know, there was a miniseries made about our lives because it was so bad, or we were really great people that just needed to be saved because all have fallen short of the glory of God, that old man is corrupt. We need to put it off, all of it, and we need a complete surrender to Jesus. And secondly, we're told that we need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is my favorite part because I like anything that's going to make this up here work better because it's a scary place to be. It's true. That must be somebody who knows me that laughed. 
The original language here defines this, again, as renewed or reformed. And I love that, because in our thinking and in our understanding, again, we're to be different than we were before. There used to be this commercial, maybe you remember it, it said, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Do you remember that? Well, I would say that not only is a mind a terrible thing to waste, but more specifically, it's a terrible thing to leave undisciplined and unchained. Unchanged. People... As you know, we as people, we tend to focus more on renovating or reforming our behavior. You know, we're going to stop doing some things and we're going to begin to do things we think are good things or right things. But God places the focus on renovating and reforming the mind, the way we think and what we think about, because it is from what we think and believe, again, all our actions are dictated. All our actions are dictated. A dog that you tie to a tree is not a dog that has learned that it's dangerous to run in the street. That's a dog that's restricted by a leash that moderates its behavior. And a lot of us think if we just chain ourselves to something, or if we chain ourselves to a list of don'ts, that that's just simply going to make our lives pleasing to God. And if you didn't hear Jason's message yesterday here at Calvary Vista... Go online and listen to that because he gave us a great word about how the flesh, things we just do in our flesh out of our own efforts, out of our own thinking, is never going to transform the flesh. It's never going to truly help us to achieve those things that the Lord would have us to do. And, you know, we think if we chain ourselves to something, God's going to be happy with us. But it doesn't work that way because God is not looking for compliance. He's not looking for compliance. God is desiring in you and in me transformation. You know, in Romans 12, you know, you've read it. It tells us to be transformed by the renewing, same word, of our minds. We're to be transformed, made into something completely different by the renovating of our thinking. You know, we we bought a house this year. This was totally only in the Lord could this have happened. Um, Never thought it would. And after years of renting, I can sit on my couch and look out the window and go, I really don't like that tree. And I can take a saw and cut it down. It's really great. You know, because for years I've had to live with ugly trees. And so it's a real blessing. It it truly never could have happened without the Lord. But I can change anything I want to in that house. And when we first looked at the house, before we made an offer, the house had carpet in every room, but the kitchen and the bathroom is a tiny house, but there was carpet everywhere. And every single room in the house, every single room, every wall, had a very distinctive color on it. A very distinctive color on it. Like, but they weren't yucky. I mean, they were just, wow, that's color. You know, like a mint green. Uh, one room in the living room, one wall in the living room had this beautiful but very dark navy wall. This whole length of the wall of the room was this navy wall. And it looked really great with all of her furniture in it. But I didn't have a thing that anything in this house was that those walls were going to go with. So within 12 hours of getting the keys to that house after it closed, my husband and my son-in-law had all the carpet out in the yard. They'd taken half the popcorn off of all the ceilings. And by the end of the week, there was nothing in that house that looked the way it looked a week previously, except for the ugliest kitchen counter in the universe, which is just too expensive to change right now. If you come to my house, please never go in the kitchen. Just know that I didn't pick that. I, I didn't pick that. But that's what happens to us. That's what is, is to happen to us. Paul tells us in two different places that this transformation comes with this renovation, this renewing of our mind. And how does it take place? Well, I don't know about you, but before I was saved, I didn't spend a lot of time sitting around reading the Bible. I don't think you did either. But now that we are, we do. And that's always the best place to start. And when you do, really, 
pray and specifically ask the Lord to show you, to teach you, to to change something in you. Uh, I think it was Alexander McLaren, one of those old Scottish guys, he said that every time he approached the word, he did with pen in hand. He had the expectation that he was going to hear something that he needed to take note of, that God wanted him to know. Come to the word prayerfully with the intention and the expectation to be transformed by it. Don't get in that rut that Tozer was talking about. Warren Wiersbe says, as the mind understands the truth of God's word, it is gradually transformed by the spirit, and this renewal leads to a changed life. Physically, you are what you eat, but spiritually, you are what you think. And as he thinks in his heart, so he is, Proverbs 23, 7. Another way that we participate in the renovating of our minds is to practice in your life is to make a practice in your life to think about what you think about. To think about what you think about. A little self-inspection is a really good thing, ladies, and from time to time we need to think hard about the things that influence us, the things we set our mind on for entertainment, and the sources that shape our opinions. This is very important. I'll let you in on a little secret. Facebook is not a good source for shaping your opinions. Not an anti-social media person by any stretch of the imagination. But you've heard the phrase, consider the source. Please check your sources there and elsewhere. Because at the end of the day, what we really need is to let the word of God be your main source. And think about what you think about. Consider it well. And then the third thing that we're told to do is to put on the new man or the new woman. And one definition gives a really good word picture. It says to put on is in the sense of sinking in to a garment. Well, and it's finally getting a little bit chilly here in California. We're having, you know, a little bit of weather, unless you're from outside of California, in which case you think rightly we are weather babies. You know, I am. I can take 110 degree weather, no problem. I love that. But 68 degrees, I'm going... Why don't we have a fireplace? Bring me a parka. I need a blanket. I'm just like, oh, it's so cold in the morning. It's not really. But when I read that definition, I think about that in the morning, how good it feels to sink into a warm robe or to get dressed and put on that warm and cozy sweater, that, that sensation of being wrapped in something that now separates me from the environment. Before, before you get dressed, you're cold. You're cold. You're exposed to the elements. But once you sink into that garment, there's this layer of protection between you and your environment. And, you know, this isn't you and me saying, just saying that we will put on the new man, that we'll put on something different. This is what Tozer means about, about this practical belief. It means now that we've put off the old, we're having our minds renovated and reformed into something different. So now we thoughtfully, practically walk in a life that has now been changed by Jesus. We put it on. We make a decision. It is We put our feet to our faith. You know, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at a section of scripture that talked about you and I as being members of the household of faith, and it talked about how Jesus was our cornerstone, and and um, it went on to say that the whole building grows into a holy temple, and we're being built together for a dwelling place of, in God and the Spirit. And when we were sitting at our table talking about it, I kind of got this mental image that I was reminded of as I was studying this whole section here this week. So if you were at my table with me like that week and I talked about it, sorry, try not to be bored, I'll make it quick. But it just really came back strongly to me and it posed a question to me. I was thinking about this whole concept 
of houses being built, and it made me think of the kind of neighborhood that I live in now, and, and with the exception of a couple places, I've lived in pretty much all my life. Maybe you have too, like a track neighbor home, neighborhood. You know, all of the homes are, are pretty similar. They have basically the same, you know, facade out front. And because of the climate we live in, you know, we all have the same. We all have geraniums and agapanthas and the same kind of ground cover. You know, it's a lot, very similar. And someone might have some decorative elements on their porch, or maybe someone has an unusual tree or something that I haven't cut down yet. But, you know, for the most part, you drive through the neighborhood, and, and they all pretty much look alike. You know, a few weeks back, or whenever that was, we did a prayer walk for the Shadow Ridge campus. And uh, I had just moved out of a neighborhood in Oceanside, and we went way over there, Shadow Ridge, pulled in the neighborhood, and it was really like a Twilight Zone movie. I was going, this looks just like our old neighborhood. That is so weird. I mean, it is so weird how much this looks like the place we just left. It was really kind of a surreal thing. It must have been the same builder. I don't know. But, you know, that's kind of what we're used to. You kind of go along. You see pretty much the same thing. Every now and then, just something a little different. But sometimes you drive through a neighborhood like that, and there's a house that is completely different in a good way, not like they don't cut their grass, but completely different from every other house in the neighborhood. There's something really unique about the color scheme where they've got a totally different looking front yard where they've landscaped it different, and maybe there's a fountain, and there's all these things. You're going, look at that house. That is great. And if you're me, you stop, and you pull out your phone, and you take pictures. We have a house like that in my new neighborhood. It's like the only house like that, but not for long because I'm going to steal all their ideas. And there won't be unique anymore. It'll be my house and their house looks like that. Well, not quite. But it's, you know, you see something totally, completely different from what you've been seeing. And you're drawn to that and you go, wow, I wish my house could look like that. I wish my house could look like that. And it kind of begged the question for me. If we're the household of God and we have this foundation and we're being built, shouldn't we be a house that kind of makes our neighbors stop in their tracks and take a good hard look and go, wow, I want a house like that. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and I won't tell you what conclusions I've come to, but I challenge you to think about this too. You know, ask yourself the question again, does my life look different than other people that are not in the household of God? And, you know, again, here's a little secret for you because I'm all in the know. This cannot be achieved by an out-of-this-world sticker on your car, by a flag in your front yard, or all the you know, stuff you post on Facebook that scripture references or on your t-shirts. It can't be achieved in that way. It's, you know, to the world, to the world, all of that stuff is nominal belief. A lot of people just agree with that. You ever notice that? I mean, do you ever notice how much scripture unbelievers sometimes will quote about things? It, It amazes me. Of course, right now, nothing is coming to my mind. But, you know, I'm amazed at people that know, they'll just, you know, They'll say, you know, with God, nothing's impossible. And I'm going, you live like you don't even have any clue that there is a God, but you'll tell me that. It's amazing to me. So a lot of that stuff to the unbeliever is just nominal belief. It's stuff they just hold to. But the world needs to see our practical belief. They need to see our practical belief. They need to see things that look and are different from people who don't believe what we do. We need to show ourselves so different that they will want what we have. They need to see us walk what we will, what we actually believe in. You know, some years ago I was up at a 
conference with uh, Charlie Campbell was teaching at a worldview conference. It was all these apologists up at the Bible college. And Joe, I think it was Joe Holden was speaking and he talked to he, he gave this statement that I never forgot. He was talking about the manner in which we deal with unbelievers, particularly people who hold to some belief, maybe even believe, people who think they're believers and really hold to heretical beliefs, the way that we should deal with people who really, really differ from the way that you and I believe. And he said that in our manner, we needed to be winsome so that we might win some. That we needed to come across with that gentleness, that innocence of, of any kind of malice or agenda or forcefulness, that they would just be one by the manner that we approach them and our differences. And I just thought of that. You know, what does our house look like? And does my house, do, do I look, do I live in a way that people see something really different, practically different, and go, I would like a life like that. How do you have a life like that? So I would challenge you to ponder that as well. You know, Paul concludes this chapter with a list of do's and don'ts. I wanted, Debbie and I were talking beforehand, we were going, you know, this chapter, we could take him four weeks easy on this chapter. There's so much. It was just, it's, this is really one of my favorite chapters of scripture. And I love how God doesn't just give us don'ts, but he gives us an understanding in each one of those don'ts of the things that please him. And I'll leave you to travel through all of that in your groups, but I want to end on this thought. Did you notice that the theme from about verse 25 on isn't so much focused on obeying God as much as it is on doing good to others. Did you notice that? How obviously it is obeying God and obviously it is pleasing to him. But the concern here, as you look through that scripture, you'll see is how your actions and how your words affect other people. And the contrast between what we do and what God wants us to do is very, very clearly seen here. And you know what? I'll just tell you again. Me too. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. All of this stuff he's telling us is for the benefit of others. It's for the benefit of others. I'm reading, been reading because I love to read and I read way outside my budget. So Kindle's really great because there's a lot of free stuff. And I discovered some Louisa May Alcott books that I'd never read before. One was called Eight Cousins. And it's about this little girl. Uh, I think she gets, becomes an orphan and she moves in with an aunt and an uncle. And she has seven cousins all close by, some around her age, a little older, a little younger. And they're all boys. And it's just this sweet story. If you've read Little Women, you know kind of the, the, the way the, you know, the writing is. Throughout this book, as this little girl is growing up, the thing that she keeps hearkening back to and seeing as she deals with these rambunctious, growing boys is, how can I be someone that helps them be the kind of young men that they should be? It was so interesting. It's not really a Christian book, but that was such a theme. And, and as these young men grow up, they start seeing, okay, how can I be the kind of man that, that does good for other people? And that, you know, it's not all about me and my boyish ways, but how can I do good to my young girl cousin and be kind? It was really interesting. I was so struck by that. It's so not the way that we think today. It's all about us. It's, you know, what we want and how we want it. And I think we very rarely... Even sometimes in the church, maybe because of that rut, we don't really think about obeying God because it pleases him and it goes well with us, but how good it is for others when we walk in the way that the Lord calls us to walk. And again, I know we know that all these things are sin, but let's walk away from just a nominal belief that even unbelievers have about these things and start really walking toward the practical beliefs 
that reveal that you and I have, in fact, undergone a renovation. And just as you head into this next week, and Debbie touched on this um, in the announcements, I just leave you with this exhortation. Be kind. Please be kind. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. Don't be hard-hearted. And forgive one another. Always. Quickly. Completely. Because that's the way that God in Christ forgave you and me. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. I just pray as we go to our groups, God, there's so much here for us to learn from tonight. I just pray that you would move among our groups, that you would uh, just quicken our minds to learn what you have for each one of us, Father, that we would not leave this room like the women we came in, but we would leave this room changed. God, we want, we want to be a house that's never finished with the renovation project. Until that day we see you face-to-face when we're told that when we see you, we will be like you. God, we want to be changed. Help us, Father, to remember that you both desire You give us the desire to change, and you also give us the power to change. Help us to rely on you, Lord. Help us to surrender to you. Have your way in us, Lord. We love you so much. We're so grateful for your word. You are so worthy of all our trust and all our love and all our devotion and all our worship. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.